Remain standing for our gospel lesson, which is also our sermon text. One verse from Matthew 5. Verse 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us to know you, to understand what you've called us to do, who you've called us to be. And especially as we meditate on this verse, give us grace to follow in the way of our Lord in being humble and lowly of spirit. We ask for this help in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Well, this Sunday begins an eight-week series through the Beatitudes. There are eight Beatitudes in Matthew, the beginning of Matthew 5. And so for the eight weeks of our small groups, which are eight of the next ten weeks, we will be discussing each of these Beatitudes in the small groups, and I'll be preaching on each of these Beatitudes during those eight weeks uh, on the Sundays before we meet. So this is going to be... uh, Eight sermons, each one on a single verse. But you see, that, that's, uh, you might be thinking, well, that's just one verse. How are you going to preach an entire sermon on one verse? But what I'm finding is that I need more than one sermon on each of these verses. These are deep, these are rich, but we'll just limit ourselves to one sermon. Jesus begins his kingdom manifesto which is often called the Sermon on the Mount, he begins it with these eight Beatitudes. And we're going to consider each one of them. And we need to talk first, though, what, about what Beatitude even means and why the, Jesus uses this word. The word Beatitude means simply blessedness or supreme happiness. Now, the word happiness is tricky in our culture, because sometimes that has more to do with our circumstances, so I'm happy because my circumstances are good. But in Scripture, there's a deep happiness or joy that goes beyond that or deeper than that. But happiness is, or joy, is the great question confronting mankind. The whole world is longing for happiness. Everyone wants to be happy. Raise your hand if you don't want to be happy. And it's tragic to observe the ways in which people seek happiness. Most people seek it in a way that produces misery. Sin, you see, is utterly deceitful. It's always offering happiness, and it always leads to unhappiness and final misery and wretchedness. But along come the Beatitudes, And they say that if you really want to be happy, here's the way, here's the path. This and only this is the type of person who is truly happy, truly blessed. The person who reads and understands and does these things. This is the sort of person who is to be congratulated and celebrated. Here is how all Christians are to act. All Christians are meant to manifest all of these characteristics. The Beatitudes are the key 
to the blessed life. So, do you want to be happy? In the study on this study on the Sermon on the Mount, the first part of the Sermon on the Mount will be the pathway for you. We need to learn what these beatitudes mean. And there are two things that we need to be clear about right at the front of this study. First, none of the descriptions in Matthew 5, 3 to 12, that's where the eight Beatitudes are, none of these descriptions refer to a natural tendency inside of any of us. Each of the Beatitudes describes a disposition that is produced by grace alone, by the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit alone. None of this comes naturally to anyone, not to anyone who is a descendant of Adam and who inherited his sinful nature, his original sin, which is all of us here. Second, all of the descriptions in Matthew 5, 3 to 12 indicate clearly the essential difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. So the first point is that none of the descriptions in the Beatitudes refer to a natural tendency in any person, any descendant of Adam. And the second point is that all the descriptions indicate the essential difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. And that second point is what should truly concern us in these next eight sermons. The Beatitudes draw a thick bold line between true disciples of Jesus and false disciples. The difference between Christians and non-Christians is basic and fundamental to the New Testament. And one of the greatest needs in the church is a clear understanding of the essential difference between Christians and non-Christians. This difference has become blurred As the world has come into the church and the church has become worldly. The glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably draws the world to herself. That is how reformation and revival happen. Not through techniques and programs and fancy stage shows. It's through the faithfulness, and the difference of God's people. So it should not be our ambition to be as much as we can like the world or like everyone else. Rather, we should strive to be as different from the world as we can scripturally. Scripturally driven. Our ambition should be to be like Christ. The more like Him the better. And the more like Him we become, the more we shall be unlike everyone who is not a Christian. You see, the Christian and the non-Christian are completely different in what they admire. The Christian admires a man or a woman or a boy or a girl who is poor in spirit, while the world despises such a person. What the world says about the true Christian is that he is a weakling, a poor excuse for a man. It's not manly or virtuous in the eyes of the world to be, for example, poor 
in spirit. The world believes in self-confidence, self-assurance, self-expression, and mastery of life. Getting your act together. The Christian believes in being poor in spirit. Read the newspapers or get on Facebook and see the kind of person that the world admires. You'll never find anything that is further removed from the Beatitudes than that which appeals to the natural man, to the worldly man. The things that call forth his admiration are the very opposite of what we see in Matthew 5, 3 to 12. The natural man likes the, an element of boastfulness. But that is the very thing that is condemned in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For those who have been rescued from sin and death through the cross, through the blood of Jesus Christ, for those people, for those of us who have been saved from eternal damnation, there is no response more fitting than a poor spirit. In fact, the extent to which you are poor in spirit is the extent to which you understand the gospel that has rescued you from sin, from the devil's grip, from eternal death. Because when you realize what you've been rescued from and how you are, com- you are completely unable on your own to do anything about it, the only reasonable response, response is a lowly spirit, a humble spirit, a poor spirit. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? What, what does a poor spirit look like? A poor spirit is a spirit that is convinced of its moral and spiritual helplessness. A poor spirit knows in his head and in his heart that if there is anything good in him, it's only because he received it from the outside. It didn't come from within. It came from the outside in. A poor spirit is the gateway to the blessed life, to the happy life, to the joyful life. The promise of Jesus in Matthew 5, 3 is that the life of greatest blessings belongs to those who first, first, very first, are poor in spirit. And so, again, I ask, is there anyone here who is not interested in having a blessed life? God has made us to desire blessings, a life of blessings. And the Bible even teaches us to pursue the blessed life. And here's where it begins, Jesus says, with the spirit that knows its poverty, its abject poverty, a spirit that is under no illusion of its own importance and greatness. Once you discover what it means to be poor in spirit, then the rest of the Christian life falls into place. That, that's really what we see here in the, 
in the whole Sermon on the Mount, it starts with this, starts with the Beatitudes, and it starts with this Beatitude, and everything really flows from this. Blessings from heaven come down and fall upon the poor in spirit. That's the promise of Jesus in Matthew 5.3. And this first beatitude comes first for good reason. Jesus doesn't order the beatitudes haphazardly or accidentally. There's a spiritual logic to the sequence. And, and this is especially true of the first one. The first one comes first because there is no entry into the kingdom of God apart from a poor spirit. There is no one in the kingdom of God who is not poor in spirit and becoming poor in spirit. It's a fundamental characteristic of the Christian. And all the other characteristics are, in a sense, the result of this first one. They're impossible without this first one one, and they flow naturally from this first one. You see, the first beatitude, unlike the other ones, the first beatitude refers to an emptying, while the other ones are a manifestation of fullness. You can see the difference there as you read them. The first one is different from the other ones because it refers to an emptying, while the other ones are manifestations of fullness. But you see, we can't be filled until we first become empty. The fullness of Christ can only fill the person who is empty of self. You can't fill a vessel with new wine if that vessel is partly filled with old wine. Right? It'll contaminate it. The old wine must be poured out. must be emptied of the old. So this first beatitude in Matthew 5.3 reminds us that when it comes to following Christ, there must be a kind of emptying before there can be a filling. These are the two sides of the gospel as it applies to each person. As, as when, when God saves a person, and as He is saving a person, this is what we see happening. There's always a pulling down before there is a raising up. God only ever gives grace to the humble. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 6, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that in due time He may exalt you. That's the pattern we see in Scripture. And so the first beatitude is the gateway to the Christian life. There is no more perfect statement of the doctrine of justification by faith alone Then this beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs, and theirs only, is the kingdom of heaven. This is the foundation of everything else in your walk with the Lord. Let me say that again. This beatitude and what it means is the foundation of everything else in your walk with the Lord, in your response to God's saving grace in your life. Being poor in spirit is realizing that you have no recourse in yourself. That you have nothing to offer God that He didn't first give you. It also means realizing that you have nothing to offer anyone else, your brothers and sisters, your neighbor, apart from what God is doing through you. 
All of your gifts, all of your skills are from God. It's God's work in you and through you. Now, so being poor in spirit doesn't mean that you have to ignore those gifts, those talents that God has given you. You don't have to ignore the way He's working in your life or the way He's growing you in the Lord. That's not what it means to be poor in spirit, to say, oh no, that's nothing. No, being poor in spirit means realizing that whatever spiritual growth or gift that you have, that you've been given, it's from God. 100%. He has done 100% of the work 100% of the way. And so that when you get to heaven, there's not one ounce, not one percent of glory that you can give to yourself. It's not, your, it's not just your initial salvation that's by grace alone. It's all, the, all of your Christian life, all of your good works, all of your faithfulness, all of your repentance, your obedience, your turning away to, uh, from sin is 100% the grace of God. Being poor in spirit is also recognizing that you would not be able to maintain what God is doing in you apart from the ongoing, sustaining grace of the Holy Spirit. So being poor in spirit means being constantly aware of the sinfulness and deceitfulness of your own heart more than you are aware of the sinfulness and deceitfulness of others' hearts. You see, the sins of others have no prominent place on the radar of the poor in spirit. The man who is poor in spirit is aware that no one's spiritual helplessness and destitution is greater than his own. The man or woman or boy or girl who is poor in spirit has given up on the illusion of self-sufficiency. My own life has been one lesson after another of God teaching me that I am not able to accomplish what I thought I might in my own strength, through my own resources. And I hope God, I hope God is teaching you that same lesson. That's what he teaches. That's how he disciples his sons and his daughters. The exact opposite of being poor in spirit is being self-sufficient, self-reliant, self-made. Leaning on your own understanding and directing your own paths is being rich in spirit. And being rich in spirit is the gateway to the cursed life. So are you rich in spirit or poor in spirit? Are you living the cursed life or the blessed life? Which trajectory are you on? One of the best illustrations of what it means to be poor in spirit is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. This parable actually is a good illustration both of what it means to be poor in spirit and what it means to be rich in spirit. You remember the parable. Pharisee and a tax collector, they go up to the temple to worship God. And each of them shows his true colors 
in the way that he prays to God. Pharisee couldn't help but see how holy and righteous he was in comparison to just about everyone else, especially this tax collector. He says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. Thank you, God, that I'm so much better than these other people. On the other hand, the only thing that the tax collector could think about when he was praying was how spiritually bankrupt he was before God. He recognized his sin and his insufficiency. You remember, he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Be merciful to me. First, the sinner. He highlights himself as the sinner. That's the ongoing daily prayer of someone who is poor in spirit. They're seeking the mercy of God. They're seeking forgiveness in the sacrifice of Christ because they need it. And they are the first ones in their lives, to need it. What's interesting and instructive about this story is what Jesus says. At the end of the story, what he says about this poor in spirit tax collector. Luke 18, 14 says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. So the gospel hinges on this. Justification hinges on this. Being poor in spirit is not, it's not what justifies you before God. Nothing we do justifies us before God. We don't earn God's justification by doing the right things. However, being poor in spirit is always what a justified person looks like. It's what people look like when they know they've been rescued from God's wrath and condemnation. Being poor in spirit is not an optional character trait for the Christian. It's the most basic orientation of the person who has been saved by the blood of Christ. What's interesting about that verb, be merciful, be merciful to me, have mercy on me, some translations say, it's the only time in the New Testament that verb is used And it's really the verb, be propitiated. And the noun is propitiation. We've talked about this in previous sermons. Propitiation is God's God's wrath being satisfied by the sacrifice of Christ. So God is a holy God who has wrath and anger towards sin because he's perfectly sinless and righteous in holiness. And so he has to take his wrath out on sin. Because that's who he is. He would be going against his nature not to. And Jesus stepped in and took that wrath and satisfied God's anger and wrath. And that is, that's called propitiation. We, God has been propitiated because of what Christ did for us. And so this, this man is in the temple saying, God, be propitiated. Have mercy. Be propitiated toward me. Have your wrath dealt with because I know your wrath is coming. I deserve your wrath. 
And so the fulfillment, really, of this passage is the cross of Christ, where God was propitiated. His wrath was propitiated because of the blood of Christ. That's how we were justified. That's how we were saved from sin. And so you see how being poor in spirit is tied up with the gospel, with forgiveness, with justification, with propitiation, with damnation versus eternal life. The New English Bible translates the phrase poor in spirit in Matthew 5.3 as those who know their need for God. Now that's obviously a paraphrase, but it gets at the core meaning. How well do you know your need for God? How well do you know your need to be forgiven? How well do you know that God needs to be propitiated because of your sin against Him? How well would your friends or your family say that you know your need for God? Are you more horrified? Here here are some diagnostic questions. Are you more horrified by the sins of your neighbor or your government or your parents or your elders than you are your own? Husbands and wives, are you more appalled by the shortcomings of your spouse than you are your own? Parents, are your own sins, do do, do your own sins torment you as much as your children's sins torment you? A great indicator of your poorness in spirit is whether you take your sins as seriously as you take your children's. Children, are you ever tempted to think that your brother or your sister is far worse a sinner than you are? Do you ever say to yourself, man, my brother or my sister is so much more selfish or so much meaner than I am? Being poor in spirit means realizing that your brother or your sister is not more sinful, not more in need of God's grace and the atonement of Christ than you are. It means recognizing that we offend God and sin against Him way more than anyone has ever sinned against us. Think about that. Being poor in spirit means realizing in your bones that we offend God and sin against Him far more, far more profoundly than anyone has ever sinned against us. It's easy to be poor in spirit and theory, but when the rubber meets the road, when it comes to real relationships and real live people, especially those closest to us, especially those that we live with, our hearts are quite skilled at seeing how spiritually poor other people are. Our hearts are not nearly as skilled at seeing how spiritually poor we ourselves are. And yet, when we consider what it actually means to be lowly, to be poor in spirit in our day-to-day lives, in our homes, in our workplace, in our neighborhoods, in our church, in our small groups, in our friendships, in our hospitality, in our marriages, then we see how being poor in spirit can actually lead to blessed life in this life. Think about how blessed our homes would be we parents 
we're as concerned about our, about our shortcomings as we are about our children's. Think about how blessed our church would be if each member were more aware of his own sins than he was the sins of everyone else around him. What if Christian churches and, and denominations focused on their own weaknesses and on the strengths of other churches and denominations instead of the other way around? What if husbands were at least as concerned about loving their wives sacrificially, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, and living with them considerately, as Peter says in 1 Peter 3, as they were about their wives being gentle and quiet and submissive as they ought to be? What if wives were at least as concerned about being gentle and quiet and submissive as they are about whether their husbands are loving them sacrificially and living with them considerately? What if the world were filled with churches and Christians who knew all the way down to the marrow of their bones that they don't have it all together? And that everything that they do have Every good thing they've done was a free and unassisted gift from God. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? 1 Corinthians 4, 7. The Apostle Paul reiterates his own version of this beatitude in two different places in his epistles. In Romans 12, 3, Paul says, I say to every one of you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. And then he says in Philippians 2, 3, do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility consider others more significant than yourselves. We see here that being poor in spirit is a two-sided coin. First, according to the Romans 12:3 verse I read, it's not thinking more highly of yourself than you ought. And second, according to Philippians 2:3, the second verse I read, it's considering others more significant than yourself. Is there anything that goes against the grain of our fallen nature than either of these two things. Not thinking more highly of yourself than you ought and considering others more significant than yourself and looking after their interests before your own. Thinking too highly of ourselves and not thinking highly enough of others comes naturally. That's, that's what comes naturally to us. That's why it's so easy for us to talk about people in their absence in a critical and mean-spirited way that would horrify us if we overheard someone speaking that way about us. It's difficult for us to really believe that anyone else's dignity is as worthy of preservation as ours is. And that's why gossip happens. Gossip can only be performed by those who think that they are better than the ones that they're gossiping about. You cannot be poor in spirit and gossip at the same time. It happens by those who think that the dignity 
of the ones that they're talking about is not as important as their own dignity. The promise that Jesus makes in Matthew 5.3 is that the poor in spirit will be blessed. You don't have to go grasping for blessings on your own because God will give them. The poor in spirit will enjoy a deep and eternal happiness. The kingdom of heaven belongs to them and it belongs to no one else. Think about that. I'm going to close with four points of application that I hope will encourage you to grab hold of this promise that Jesus makes in Matthew 5, 3. Number one, the blessings of being poor in spirit are all-encompassing. Being poor in spirit is the fountainhead of the entire Christian life. It's at the beginning of the Beatitudes for good reason. It will have an effect on every nook and cranny of your life. A fruitful Christian life hinges on being poor in spirit. If you're rich in spirit, your walk with Christ will be hamstrung until you are broken. And God always has ways of breaking the children that He loves. The richness or poorness of your spirit touches everything in your life. It determines the way you think and talk and work and worship. It shapes the way you parent, the way you love, the way you deal with conflict in your marriage, the way you respond to criticism. The blessedness of being poor in spirit is comprehensive. It touches everything. On the flip side, the cursedness of being rich in spirit is also comprehensive. It touches everything. Number two, the richness or poorness of your spirit will have a profound effect on all your relationships. A lot of what the Sermon on the Mount is about is relationships. A broken relationship can only be healed by a broken spirit. In any relationship, two broken spirits, two poor spirits, are better than one, but one is better than none. And you only have control over one spirit in any relationship, and that's yours. No friendship, no marriage, no home has ever suffered from too much poorness of spirit. Imagine how your home would look if you were to extend to everyone else in your home the same love, the same benefit of the doubt, the same respect, the same dignity, the same patience that you extend to yourself and that you wish others would extend to you. And in fact, that God has extended to you in Christ. Number three, being poor in spirit is only possible if the Spirit of Christ is living in you. A lot of people, a lot of interpreters, when they get to the Sermon on the Mount, they start saying things like, well, this is not something that we're actually supposed to do. This is impossible. This is just to show us our sin and to show us how we don't measure up. This is law, not gospel. But you see, Jesus says that we have this, when, we, when He gives us the Spirit, 
He will enable us to do these things. And that's what the rest of the New Testament after the Gospels flesh out, how we've been given the Spirit of Christ to follow Jesus, to obey Him. And it's only through the power of the risen Christ that you are able to be poor in spirit. So it's true that you can't do it on your own. The whole Sermon on the Mount, beginning with the first beatitude, is impossible for the natural man. Because the entire Sermon on the Mount starts with a heart orientation toward God. And that's impossible for the natural man. But for the redeemed man, the saved person, the man or woman or boy or girl who has been redeemed by the blood of Christ, it is possible. Being poor in spirit, though, does run against the grain of our self-important, self-satisfied hearts. So it can only be accomplished in you by the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. Number four, Jesus became poor in spirit to save you and to enable you to become poor in spirit. So this is related to the previous point. Jesus was not spiritually destitute. He was not spiritually destitute. As we are. He was not bankrupt before God. As you and I are. And yet. And yet. He became destitute on the cross. To rescue you from the consequences of your spiritual poverty. He became poor in spirit so that you could become rich in spiritual blessings. He is so humble, so lowly of spirit, that he bore the full weight of your sins on the cross. He who was without sin became sin for you, so that you could become the righteousness of God. He took your sin and gave you his righteousness. Christ's humility has led to your salvation. Think about that. His poorness of spirit, his lowly, lowliness of spirit has led to your salvation from sin and eternal death. He denied himself so that you could enter the blessed life, so that you could enjoy eternal life with him and his Father and the Holy Spirit forever. He saved you also, though, to enable you to take up your cross and follow Him in self-denial and humility. He saved you so that you could become poor in spirit, so that you could imitate Him in His lowliness. Matthew 5, 3, as well as all the other Beatitudes, is above all a summary of the attitude and the behavior of Jesus Christ. He became a man. He took upon himself the likeness of sinful flesh, it says. Though he was equal with God, he did not use his godness to his own advantage. While on the earth, he decided to live as a man with the limitations of a man, even though he was still God. And he lived truly as a man who was dependent on God. Just read the Gospels. This led him to say what he said in John 5.30. I can do nothing by myself. Imagine that the God-man, the one who created the universe, 
can do nothing on his own. He's utterly dependent on God. If Christ believed this about himself, if he felt the need to spend huge amounts of time in prayer and dependence on his Father, how much more should you believe this about yourself? Unimagined blessings await those with the spiritual fortitude to empty themselves of themselves. Unimagined blessings await those with the spiritual strength to rid themselves of the lingering pride and self-assurance and self-reliance. Unimagined blessings await those who become aware of their poverty, the poverty of their spirit before God. So are you poor in spirit? Are you becoming poor in spirit? How do you really feel about yourself? How do you feel about the people around you? Do you boast, at least in your own mind, about things that are accidental? Or about things that are really from God that you're not responsible for anyway? Do you secretly believe that you do have some good qualities or gifts that you didn't receive from God? Do you boast as though you didn't receive it from God as the Corinthians did? Do you think and speak and pray as one who is aware of his own spiritual poverty? How does one become poor in spirit? How does one get there? The answer is that you don't look at yourself. Focusing on yourself is not the solution. You have to do an assessment of yourself, but you can't stay there, and the focus is not on yourself ultimately. That will just make the problem worse. The way to become poor in spirit is to look at God, not at yourself. Read this book about him. Study it. Read his law. Look at what he expects from you. And just contemplate standing before him in all his majesty and holiness and perfection. More specifically, look at the Lord Jesus Christ as he is presented in the Gospels. The more you do that, the more you will understand why the apostles said to Jesus, Increase our faith. Lord, show us how to have more faith to follow you. Jesus was constantly showing them that their faith was virtually nothing. It was smaller than they thought. And sometimes they became painfully aware of it. They would think that they had something because they were casting out demons or preaching or healing. But then Jesus would tell them, how many times they need to forgive someone. And that was just too much. And they once again realized their weakness and their poorness, their poverty. They would realize they had nothing and they would ask for more faith. When we look at Jesus, when we look at who he he is and who he has called us to be, one of our first responses should be, Lord, Increase my faith. Give me more faith to do 
what you've called me to do, to obey you in this way. So look at Jesus, the author and finisher, the beginner and finisher of your faith. The more you look at him, the more hopeless you'll feel about your own innate resources. And the more you'll become poor in spirit. Look at him, look at Jesus, and keep looking at him. You can't truly look at Jesus without feeling your poverty and your emptiness before him. And as you look at him, say to him, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Jesus is the all-sufficient one. Nothing you need is in yourself, and everything you need is in him. Let's pray. Father, help us to sell everything, to sell all the riches of our soul, of our spirits, and follow you. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.